It is indeed a joy to be with you all. Uh, this is my first time visiting, but I have already benefited from uh, the ministry of Christian Fellowship Church. As Lucas mentioned, I've been on the last couple men's retreats, and I've been really blessed by that. So we appreciate all that you guys have done and have gotten to meet some of you. So it really is a joy to be with you this morning. Um, I uh, would invite everyone to turn to the book of John. Our sermon text this morning comes from John chapter 13. We'll be looking at verses 21 through 30. John chapter 13, verses 21 through 30. And I'll say a quick prayer while we turn there. Lord, I do ask that you would be with us now. Uh, help me to be faithful. Uh, we ask that you would speak through your word that you've inspired. We thank you for the gift of it. Help us now to hear, to be changed, and to, to love you more. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 13, starting in verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in, sp in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought, because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. There's a couple ways you can treat uh, the character of Judas when you're meditating through uh, scriptures, you're reading through the gospel accounts, uh, the, the superficial way, you, you, you glaze over Judas really quickly. I think most of us know uh, the account of, of Judas. We know basically the story, even non-Christians do. And so you can go through it really quickly and say, man, Judas, what a bad guy. We all know, we all know Judas was a bad guy. The Italian poet Dante, in his description of hell, it had nine circles, and in the deepest circle of hell, where the worst sinners go, you had Satan, half frozen in ice, suffering for all of eternity. He had three heads, and in his center head went the worst human who'd ever lived. It was Judas Iscariot. We all know Judas is uh, a bad guy. And, I mean, no one names their kid Judas. No one uses that name anymore. Not even atheists name their children Judas. I mean, given the way some uh, new atheists are starting to get a little bolder, they might do that just to be subversive, but not yet, not yet. People don't name their child Judas because we all know that treachery is especially heinous, that, that there's something deeply unsettling about betrayal. When you sin, when you commit evil against someone that you owe love and loyalty to. We hear stories about husbands who kill their wives and children. Children who, who uh, betray their parents. When people commit treason, that's a, that's a capital offense. And, it, and it, it boils our blood and it sits ill with us. And, and we say, oh, there is a special place in hell for people like that. We know betrayal is evil, heinous, disgusting. 
So as you slow down with Judas, we, we could just pass over Judas and say, that's a bad guy. Maybe we start to slow down and, and go, okay, we sit in it and we, and we recognize, ooh, yeah, we, we feel the uns, un, un, unsettling nature of exactly what it was G- Judas did. But then the longer we spend, the longer we spend meditating, it become, meditating becomes even, even more unsettling because Scripture starts to become a mirror. It starts to become a window into our own hearts and the Holy Spirit works as he has promised to do through the scriptures. The longer I spent with Judas, the the longer I wanted to be done spending time with Judas. I have at least uh, 30, 40 more minutes with him, and so you're going to join me. Join me now in spending time with with Judas. And uh, in order to do this, we're going to ask and answer three questions this morning. We're going to ask and answer three questions about this text that we just read. First of all, we've got to ask, what's up with Satan? What's going on with Satan? What's his role in all this? We want to understand Judas. We've got to understand Satan because he makes an appearance right there in the middle of the text. We're also going to ask, what's up with this bread? Why, why, why the bread? What is, what is this bread dipping? Why is when Judas get the bread, he, he, he runs off? Is this just random historical detail? What's going on with the bread? And then lastly, we'll ask, uh, what's the deal with mentioning that it was night? John makes a, a point. He ends the, the section. There's a, a definite transition between the end of chapter 13 and chapter 14. And John ends it by saying, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. So what's going on? Why, uh, why night? Why, why darkness? So what role does Satan play in this? What's up with the bread and, and why night? We definitely, we definitely have to understand why uh, Satan shows up in the middle of the passage if we want to understand how we uh, are to examine and reflect on Judas. He, he shows up and it says, Satan entered into him. Satan entered into Judas. And when I hear that word, enter, Satan enter in, my brain calls up other words like possession and exorcism, right? Is, is this what's going on? Is, is Satan coming in and taking over Judas's body, his muscles? Is Judas now a, a meat puppet? Should we think of him primarily as a, a victim? That's what comes to my mind when I, I hear Satan enters into him. Probably not. Probably not. Judas is not a victim in this text. And it's, it's really important that uh, we have a good understanding of that. It's really important that we're, we're clear on that. So we're, we're going to look at uh, and uh, unpack why we know that Judas is not a victim, that what's happening here is probably not a case of possession in the, in the Hollywood sense, of demon coming over and taking, and taking over uh, Satan's, or Judas's body, so now he no longer has control of his actions. First, we can consider the other time this type of language is used. Luke uses the exact same language of Satan and Judas. In chapter 22, verse 3, this is earlier in the account when Judas is planning to betray Jesus. And when he first plans, it says, Judas, Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot. This is from Luke's account. Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. And he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So we have that language again, Satan entered into Judas. In the other accounts, the parallels in Matthew and Mark, they don't even mention Satan. Matthew and Mark feel content not to even mention Satan. But we also have a clue in the way John describes that same event. John describes that same event of Judas having the idea to go betray Jesus. And John says the devil put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. The devil put it into his heart. So not not the language of entering, but putting it into his heart, whispering to him giving him suggestions. We read earlier in uh, John that 
Jesus, when confronting the Pharisees, he said, you're of your father the devil. You do the same works that he does. Satan whispers. That's, that's quite different, right? Satan giving uh, uh, an idea, that's quite different than coming and taking over. Right? I can whisper all I want to my children and I can give them suggestions, but they're not going to do it unless there is something in their heart that is amenable to what I am suggesting. We also have the wider depictions of Judas, the wider descriptions of him, which you might summarize as Judas being a, a culpable person. He, he's described as the one who would betray Jesus, right? John chapter 6, when Jesus is addressing the crowds, he says, there are some of you who do not believe. He's addressing the crowds, but his disciples are there. He says, there's some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So there, Jesus connects Judas' betrayal with a lack of belief. You're among those who do not really believe. Judas culpable, right? We also have that very famous statement of Ju- about Judas that appears in the Synoptic Gospels. Right in the, the midst of the, the final supper together, Jesus says, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And so the wider, so you've, you've got the language of entering into Satan entering into Judas, and we see that the other scripture writers use this language, not just of, of possession, but of how Satan whispers and gives suggestions. And you have the wider depiction of Judas, which is he is culpable. He is a man without belief. You also have the wider theological concern, right? Our sin is our primary problem. We read in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, the beginning, verses 1 through 4, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Notice two things in that Ephesians quote. Dead in trespasses and sins comes first. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. That's what results in following after Satan. That's what results in following the prince and the power of the air. And he describes that following, that going after Satan, as living out the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, doing what you want to do. We also have the opposite in Colossians, where sin being dealt with disarms Satan. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So by dealing with our sin, Satan is disarmed, right? You see, what we see here in Judas is is the horror of sin, not the horror of Satan, right? We, Satan is not the one who makes us follow the passions of our flesh. It's the passions of our flesh that make us want to follow Satan, that make us amenable to his whispers, to his suggestions. Now, of course, Satan's not uh, totally out of the picture for Christians, right? 
We know that uh, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with a wicked deception. So as Paul says in Thessalonians, Satan is going to continue to work in this world. We also heard from Jesus that the false Christ, the false prophets, they'll arise and they'll perform great signs and wonders. As we just connected with Paul's statement, that's coming from Satan. So as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Satan's working to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Now, this doesn't mean that it, it is possible, but it means that even if it isn't possible, Satan's still making the attacks. Satan is still making moves. Right, so Satan's not out of the picture, but we have to understand how he fits into that picture. We should be praying for spiritual protection. This world is not naturalistic. It is not all that we can see. The spiritual is real. We should be praying for protection. We should be trusting in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and his power to protect and to have victory but as we pray for protection from the demonic, from Satan and all his devices, we should simultaneously be confessing the sins that would make us, that give him any power at all. Simultaneously be presenting ourselves as in need. Right? So he's not out of the picture. And we know with Judas specifically that Judas was greedy. Judas was a thief. And the, the, the famous scene where uh, Mary comes and she wipes Jesus' hair with her feet. She pours expensive perfume on him to anoint him and she wipes his feet with her hair. And in the other Gospels, uh, you get a mention that some of the disciples kind of th threw a little fuss. They said, why are you wasting this expensive perfume? We could have sold this and given the proceeds to the poor. We could have done better with this. But John specifically mentions that it was actually Judas who raised this uh, complaint. And he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas was a thief. Judas loved money. He was greedy. Throughout the entire course of Jesus' ministry, Judas was stealing, stealing from that ministry. See, Judas had a price. He had a price. It's, it's not an accident that he betrays Jesus literally for money. He sells Jesus out. Judas' problem is not Satan. It's his greed that leads him to join hands with Satan. So when we're understanding the relative importance of Satan and the, the priority of Judas's sin here, and by extension our sin, we also got to ask, what's up with this bread? What's going on with the bread, right? Jesus dips the bread in some wine, gives it to Judas, and then Judas leaves. Uh, random historical detail? Probably not, probably not. You, you have to put yourself in the drama. You have to put yourself in the drama. You have to remember that at this point, Judas had been walking with Jesus for about three years. He had seen, he had seen with his own two eyes things that we wish, wish we could have seen. Things that you and I might find ourselves praying, Lord, if I could just see this, my faith would be so strong. I would be so, so faithful. Judas saw, he saw Jesus' goodness. He walked with him. He saw his care for the poor, his care for those that others rejected. He saw his mercy, how Jesus interacted with sinners, how he invited them to repentance. He, Judas saw how Jesus healed people Touched those who no one else in society would touch. Jesus came and he touched people and instead of them making him unclean, Jesus made them clean. Judas saw that. He saw all of Jesus' goodness and he saw all of Jesus' power. Judas spent enough time with Jesus to know this, this man is exactly who he says he is. This man is exactly who he says he is. He saw Jesus' goodness. He saw Jesus' power. Judas also participated in the power of Jesus' ministry. 
right? In Luke 9, uh, we read that Jesus called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Judas participated in a powerful preaching ministry, in a successful preaching ministry. He evangelized. He got to see how when in faithfulness to the gospel, when preaching, he got to see the results. He got to see the Spirit moving. To know that power, it makes it all the more vivid when you remember that Jesus said, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Judas saw Jesus' goodness, he saw his power, he participated in the power of his ministry, and at this time, during this evening, Judas had already agreed to the hit, right? Judas had already sold Jesus out. He had already met with the Pharisees, he had already made the plan to betray Jesus. Judas had already accepted the money. So remember that, sitting there at that table, having dinner, with his friends, his companions, his fellow workers, with his Lord. He had seen his goodness, seen his power. During that entire dinner, Judas had already sold him out. He had to sit there. It, it, it takes a special type of sociopath to be able to, to get through that and, and stand it. Judas couldn't. Judas couldn't. It was too much to bear. Too much to bear, especially when you consider the fact that Jesus had just explained the Last Supper. Right before this, Jesus had just explained the Last Supper. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is my body, broken for you. My blood, shed for you. Now, we know that the, the apostles were, were quite obtuse, and they didn't, they didn't understand everything about Jesus' death. They didn't understand everything until, until the end. So who knows what was going through their minds in particular when Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper. I mean, it's happening during Passover. There's lots of clues. They should be understanding atonement. He's been prepping them. But we know that they, they were obtuse. They weren't getting everything. So we don't know exactly what was going through their minds. But you can imagine... What's going through Judas's mind as Jesus is talking about laying down his life, as Judas is talking about dying, as Jesus is talking about dying, maybe some of the other uh, apostles thought like metaphorically, oh, you're suffering, you're suffering to be king. This is, you know, a difficult life that you, you've called to live. But Judas wouldn't have been able to get those words out of his ear. You are going to die. You're going to die because of what I've done. You're going to die because of what I've done. Judas could not handle the fellowship or the weight of the symbol. So you, so you have to remember all that when Jesus dips the bread into the wine and then hands it to Judas. That bread dipped in wine was the hottest coal that has ever been heaped on a person's head in the history of humanity. Judas could not handle it, and so he ran. He left. When giving that bread and wine to him, that's when it says Satan entered him. He could not handle it. He left. In that moment, he left. You see, the tragedy of Judas's betrayal is, was that it consumed him so much. It consumed him so much that in the face of the Lord's Supper, what he heard was shame, not salvation. When confronted with the goodness of Jesus, when confronted with the imagery and the symbols of the Lord's Supper, Judas could only see the shame of what he was. He couldn't see the salvation in the words, and so he left. He fled. 
And sometimes we forget because the other gospel writers jump pretty much from that uh, event to the garden, right? They, they cut from that event to the garden. But this is only John chapter 13. There's another five chapters before we get to the garden. Jesus kept talking, kept teaching after Judas left. So remember, Judas never got to hear any of John 14 through 17. He left before it. Tragedy. Tragedy. Judas didn't get to hear John 14.1. He didn't get to hear Jesus say, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. He never got to hear the high priestly prayer. He cut out before that. He didn't understand. He didn't understand what the Lord's Supper meant. Jesus said, this is my blood of the new covenant. Those words should have rang in his ears. They should have rang in all the apostles' ears. They should have been drawn back to Jeremiah 31. They should have been drawn to the words, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. That's what you're supposed to hear in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, the death of Christ is an invocation to forgiveness. I will forgive their iniquities. I will remember their sin no more. The death of Christ is an invitation not just to forgiveness from sin, but to cleansing from sin. By Jesus' death, he made it possible for us to be cleansed, not just forgiven, but cleansed from the sin that plagues us. I will give them a new heart. But Judas didn't get any of that. His, His betrayal consumed him. His love for money and then his shame over what he had done consumed him, so he couldn't hear any of that. He couldn't hear any of that in the Lord's Supper, and so he ran. He ran, and it was night, right? It was night. John makes a point of saying that. It was night. Why? Why mention that it was night? It's not hard, not hard to guess. Oh, the sweet, sweet cover of darkness. Jesus said, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. There's a reason Jesus uses this metaphor. There's a reason why, on the whole, we commit crimes at night. We want to hide. Judas had a price. He had a price for selling out Jesus. He didn't want to be seen anymore. He couldn't bear to look Jesus in the eyes anymore. He couldn't bear to be seen by the rest of the apostles anymore. He had to go out. Go out into darkness where you can hide your sin. Don't let anyone see your shame. Don't let yourself feel exposed. Sometimes we forget because now we have you know, electricity. Night before electricity, much, much darker than night now. Go out in the rural areas, much darker than we think of. Even we watch movies and television for depicting night, but they got special lighting so you can see everything perfectly, even though it's supposed to be dark. Not so in real darkness. Not so when they're having to use torches to, to illuminate. Why, why do they need Judas, right? Why do they need Judas to help them find Jesus? Jesus is a minor celebrity at this point. But to go and, and find people at night, first of all, it's going to be hard just to find them and to make sure you got the right person. You need someone who knows Jesus really well. You need someone. So night, much easier, much easier to hide your eyes, much easier to avoid eye contact, much easier to pretend like no one else is watching. 
The burden of that betrayal made Judas want to curl up and disappear. He was comfortable and safe in the night. We do this too. Maybe not with literal darkness, but we like to hide. Even Christians, we like to hide. We'll take anonymity. Anonymity. Don't let others know us at all. Just keep to ourselves. You can be a face in the pew, but that's about it. We certainly, certainly won't go the step of joining the church, right? Jesus said in Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. That's where Jesus is. I don't want to be there. I don't want to look him in the eye. I don't want to have to, to wrestle with him. I don't want him to see me. Maybe we will uh, go the step of joining, but then never, never really open up, never really confess significant sins to each other, never really let people see us because... We don't want them to see us. We don't want them to see us because we, like Judas, have a price. Judas had a price, right? Judas had a literal price. He loved money and he was willing to sell out Jesus. It was worth betraying Christ. It was worth betraying Christ. But we have a price. You have a price. You have a price. That's what sin is, right? Sin is loving something more than God. If we say we have no sin, as John says in one of his epistles, if we say we have no sins, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If you have sin in your heart, that means you have a price. Maybe we didn't, we've never reckoned with that. But you have a price. Something that you'd sell out Jesus for. What is it? I'd betray you for that relationship. I'd betray Jesus for that. I'd betray Jesus for a night with that person. I'd betray Jesus for that amount of money. I'd betray Jesus for that house. I'd betray Jesus for that job. I'd betray Jesus for that type of success. Well, I'd betray Jesus for that amount of attention and adoration. Or I'd betray Jesus for that type of safety. I'd betray Jesus for health. We have a price. We have something that we would be willing to sell out Jesus for. You know, perhaps the only difference between Judas and us is we haven't been offered our price yet. We haven't been offered it. We don't have a chance to display the fact that we have a price. Right? You spend time with Judas and you start to see this. You spend time with Judas and I see, if you could really see, if you could see the depths of my sin, if you could see the level of betrayal that exists in my heart, if you could see what I would sell out Jesus for, no one would ever name their child Jeremiah ever again. Never. The name would be retired. So what do you do? What do you do when you recognize this and you identify that you do, in fact, have a price? Well, number one, you don't ignore this. Don't ignore this. Don't hear this and then not do the examination. Don't hear this and and ignore the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Don't hear this and just choose to put it aside and not examine yourselves, not find that out. Not see the sin in your heart. Don't don't do that. Don't don't shove down uh, the message. So we don't ignore it. We don't ignore that fact. But when we have... We have wrestled with it. We have wrestled with our sin. We have wrestled with the depth of our, the betrayal that exists in our heart. We don't pretend like it's not true. We don't acknowledge it and then just go on living. What we have to do is confess that. Confess that honestly. Confess it exactingly. Harshly, if we say we have no sin, as we read, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We'll confess sin in the abstract. 
will confess, I am a sinner. But when you start to get more specific, that's, that's, that's no good. You start to have excuses. Or you start to just pretend that that's not there. Confess your betrayal in the abstract. You come to the Lord and you say, Lord, help me. This is my price. This is what I would sell you out for. This is true of me, please. If you bring that to him, confess it. He already knows. He already knows. There's no point in not being honest with the Lord. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Those two pillars from the new covenant. To forgive us, not hold that against us, and to cleanse us. Make it not true of us anymore. So you identify your price and you bring that to him. You say, Lord, this is my price. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Forgive me for this and take it away. Make it not true of me anymore. Judas ran and hid. He couldn't look Jesus in the eye. We need to look Jesus in the eye and confess. When we run to Jesus, instead of away from him, we will find in the Lord's Supper, we will find in the face of Jesus Christ that there is not shame, but there is salvation. In his death, we will find sufficient payment to cover the most heinous of betrayal that exists in our hearts. And we will find sufficient power in the death of Christ, in his resurrection life, to overcome even the most dark, wicked types of betrayal that exist in our hearts. Don't run away from him. Run to him. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for all that you have done and all that you are. And we do confess that there exists betrayal in our hearts and there exists even betrayal to the degree that we would. We would betray you. We would sell you out. We do it in the micro with little sins. Help us not to minimize that. Help us not to only think in the micro. Help us to recognize the depth of our betrayal and our need for you and help us to know the confidence that we can have because of the effectiveness of your son, his death and his power and his goodness. So I pray even now that you would help us to recognize our sin, our betrayal, but that we would not run from you, instead run to you and confess it freely and know the power of your forgiveness and your cleansing. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for his great, great work of salvation. Help us not to trust in that. We pray in his name. Amen.